The challenge in immigration is to find some way not to inflict gratuitous cruelties and yet to arrive at the non-binary intermediate position that both gets the country the, the numbers and the talent it needs while avoiding the problems of social instability. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Two things are true at the same time. The first is that Donald Trump is inflicting terrible damage on the United States and the world. Getting him out of office in 2020 needs to be the highest priority to any Democrat, capital D or small d. At the same time, the reasons why somebody like Donald Trump could get elected in the first place has deep causes. We need to make a lot of economic and other changes in this country in order to make sure that somebody like Trump doesn't get elected again. And this means winning in 2020 on an agenda that actually improves this country in a fundamental way. Now, the fact that these two narratives are both partially true can help to explain some of the rancor in the democratic debates. To moderates like, say, Joe Biden, it is very hard to understand why people on the left of the party want to prioritize proving the radical bona fides over getting Trump out of the White House. Meanwhile, people on the left of the party are claiming that they will only win against Trump and that they will only be able to carry out the kind of changes the country needs if they run on a deeply progressive agenda. Well, I think both sides in this debate are half right and half wrong. Here's how I see it. Number one, there's actually a lot of support for a range of progressive policies in this country. A majority of Americans think that we should have universal health insurance. A majority of people in this country want it to become easier to unionize. They want higher minimum wages. They want higher taxes on the rich. So it is possible to run on a proudly progressive agenda that is appealing to most Americans. Number two, there are also some real limits on the kinds of politics that can win in the United States. While most Americans are for some form of universal health insurance, for Medicare, for all who want it, as some people have put it, they do not want private insurance to be abolished, which is unsurprising because a majority of adults in the United States have private insurance and a huge majority of those who have private insurance say that they are happy with the quality of care and the coverage that they receive. The same is true when it comes to capitalism and socialism. Most Americans have a positive view of capitalism. Most Americans have a negative view of socialism. Most importantly, the number of Americans who have both a negative view of capitalism and a positive view of socialism is very, very low, only about 17%. So some of the things that candidates are saying, like Pete Buttigieg, like Bernie Sanders, that it doesn't matter if they label us a socialist 
because Republicans always label Democrats socialists. So who cares? Simply doesn't make sense. Yes, Barack Obama was called a socialist all of the time by Fox News, but the attack didn't stick because Obama did a lot to make sure that average Americans didn't believe it. This is how he won two victories. So what do Democrats have to do? Well, I'm sorry if it sounds really simple, but they should run on some of the progressive policies that would amount to very significant change, which are highly popular. But they also need to ensure that they stay away from policies that have the capacity of turning people away from Democrats, of making them feel that voting for a Democrat is an unsafe choice for their own interests. Some of this may sound incoherent, it may sound as though these different preferences are at cross-purposes. I actually don't think they are. Americans like capitalism, they like free enterprise, they also feel that the current system is rigged, but we live in a form of crony capitalism. So instead of promising to abolish capitalism, political candidates should be promising to make sure that we take on crony capitalism, making sure that everybody finally has to play by the same rules. That is the core of a winning economic message for Democrats. That's what they need to both defeat Donald Trump and be able to affect real political change. I really look forward to sharing with you a conversation I had with David Frum about two months ago. So bear in mind that we had this conversation a little while ago and unfortunately there is something slightly funny going on with the audio this time round. I don't know whether it's a radio playing in the background or some interference from a cell phone. Please just slog through that because I promise you the conversation is worth it. David Frum has been involved in American politics for a long time. He is a conservative who served in senior roles under the George W. Bush White House, but he is also one of the most prominent and eloquent and insightful of the never Trumpers. He has written very important pieces in The Atlantic for the last few years, and we have a wide range of conversations about what it means to be a conservative today the ways in which he has changed his mind or has not changed his mind over the last few years. Did he leave movement conservatism or did movement conservatism leave him? We debate his highly discussed and controversial cover story for The Atlantic on immigration. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here with you again. So before we started recording, you said you're interested in talking about how you became less conservative when you got older. And I was wondering whether you've become less conservative as you've gotten older or whether conservatives have become more radical, more extreme, on one reading more conservative and another reading less conservative yes. as you've gotten older. Well, you know, there is a strange conceit, and I think it's especially powerful on the political right, where people feel it a great virtue to say, I've never changed my mind about anything. And maybe I'm sensitive to this, because recently I was in a kind of Twitter dispute in which people accused me of having changed my mind on a lot of things, as if they'd scored some harsh point. And I have, over my life, changed my mind a lot of things. I've made 
sort of a point of writing reasons when I have, not in every case, but in, in most cases, just because I think, I don't assume that people are interested, but I think you sort of owe an explanation if anyone asks. Mm, right. But yes, there are things I've changed my mind about. So are these principles you've changed your mind about or simply, I mean, one of the things you obviously changed your mind about is the wisdom of the Iraq war. But that seems not necessarily a change of principle. It may be a change of your expectations of what would happen having been disconfirmed. You think that in retrospect, clearly it was a bad idea. First, that's stronger than I would put it. I am not so sure in retrospect that it was a bad idea because we don't know what's behind door number two. We don't know what mm. Iraq would have looked like without the Iraq war. And I imagine that without the Iraq war, there would have been a Syria-like bloodbath in Iraq when Saddam Hussein's grip slackened. I mean, you would have saved American lives and American treasure. I don't know you would have had more regional stability or a better outcome for Iraqis without the Iraq war. But here's, I think, the most important thing I've had to rethink. So I graduated from college in 1982, and I entered the adult political world soon thereafter. For the next quarter of a century, we had one of the longest periods of economic stability in the history of the developed world. From 1982 until 2008, there's one recession and a pretty mild one. Actually, I should say there are two recessions, both very mild. One in the early 90s, one in the beginning of the 2000s. The 1990s was more severe in my native Canada than it is in the United States, but around much of the world. It was a quarter century of few recessions no inflation. And while the economic rewards to working people were not always as fast growing in that quarter century as they'd been in the previous quarter century, it certainly looked like we had cracked the big economic problems. And my basic view of my politics was that the conservatism that I adhered to was an answer to the problems of the 1970s. Hmm. that was tested in the crisis between 1979 and 1982, and that proved successful, and that was delivering stability, good government, an answer to the big problems of how you run society, and was massively vindicated by the fall of the Berlin Wall. And one of the things I believed was there would be no major internally generated shocks to the system ever again. So this is, in a way, Gordon Brown's famous line from the 2000s that we have mastered the economy. We have yeah. mastered the econ We haven't mastered the how do we deliver a better living for everybody. We have lots of problems. In politics, any one solution means you now get the right to solve new problems. But the big problems that the conservatives of 1980, the Thatchers, the Reagan said, we have answers. We're Carter and the British Labour Party and Social Democrats. They have problems. We have answers. That for a quarter century seemed to hold true. And so for me, the events of 2007, 8, 9, the financial crisis and the economic shock that followed, they're very shattering kind of events to my whole worldview. And they really forced me to do a big rethink about my ideas about the role of the state and the need for social insurance. So what is some of that change consistent? What kinds of policies would you have dismissed out of hand 10 or 15 years ago, which you now favor? I now think we need a social insurance state that doesn't rely very much on individual initiatives. So I was very interested, for example, in moving from traditional government-funded pensions to some kind of forced savings program. Forced savings have a role as a way to supplement them. I just think you need to have a guarantee that when people get old, the, the state's going to right. give them something. The problem with it is simply that if the degree of your comfort in old age depends on having been prudent with your money, 
if being able to go on holiday if you're in old age yes. depends on the size of 401k that's perfectly fine yes but there will be some people who are quote-unquote imprudent or in yes. the terms of my very boring PhD dissertation, irresponsible, yeah. who don't live up to 1980s, 1990s notions of personal responsibility. And then the question becomes, what do we do with them? And I think the idea of a 90-year-old starving in the streets because right. they, quote unquote, fail to live up to a personal responsibility simply isn't tenable. There's a wonderful line from an old Tammany Hall boss that gets quoted a lot in the history books. I forget now who said it. But the boss said that in every ward, there has to be someone that you can go to, no matter what you've done, and get help. None of your damned law and justice, mind you, but help. And that, <laughs> I think he was thinking about if you've committed a crime, so I don't endorse that, but that kind of basic level. And I became very interested in healthcare provision, and it became clear. I mean, it's obvious in 2008, it's not true that capitalist economies have solved the problem of how do we avoid major crises. We have not solved that problem. And since we haven't, that all the lessons we learned in the 1930s, all of those institutions which look so obsolete from the point of view of 1985, from the point of view of 2015 and after, there's some wisdom there that we have to incorporate. So how do you fuse those different beliefs? You clearly have a longstanding appreciation of free enterprise and capital markets and so on. And at the same time, recognize the importance of those forms of solidarity which are unconditional. What kind of politics does that combination of well, instincts well, result in? I'm conservative enough that I don't think of it as an expression of solidarity. I see. This is the, I, I smuggled a left-wing term yeah. in. Thank you very much. Not that I'm objecting. To that. It's just not, that's not the way I would think about it. Right. I would think about it as social insurance, that we just need to know, no matter what happens, people are not going to go hungry. No matter what happens. Sorry to butt in there, but why is that not a form of social solidarity? I mean, why is it that we feel that? Why is it that we feel if our neighbor who's 90 years old is starving because they didn't put enough money into the 401k, something is deeply wrong here? Right. And to me, there is a perhaps patriotic version of solidarity which seems to express that, that we believe that our fellow citizens and to some extent our fellow humans, wherever they may be, are deserving of a certain minimum yeah. quality no. of life. And if that's violated, something about how we think of our neighbor is violated. And I'm sure you can find different terms for it, but solidarity with each other as members of the same polity, as people who live in the same place, seems a natural way to express that. Well, well maybe I'm just being atavistic here, and it's just like a knee-jerk dislike of that <laughs> word, and, and, and the song, it summons up. <laughs> but I think the thing that I am concerned about when I hear that is social stability. And that the value that I rediscovered an appreciation for in the crisis of those years was stability. And while solidarity, that may be actually asking a little bit too much of human beings. What I'm looking for is a world in which we don't deal with revolutionary upheavals. You don't have massive discontent in which the system gains support by assuring everybody that nothing too terribly wrong is going to happen to them. And one of the things that was really, I remember this very vividly from 2009, 2010, the standard rule in the United States is that you get unemployment insurance for 13 weeks. And Congress has, more or less as a matter of course, in previous recessions, extended the 13 weeks to 26 weeks. But that's always a temporary measure. And at the end of the period of economic distress, unemployment insurance returns to its 13-week norm. And during the Great Recession, there are people who, at 26 weeks, there was no work for them. And there's clearly no work. The number of job seekers in the whole country to the number of open positions, you know, at one point, I think it topped out at six or seven to one. So Congress- Yeah, I remember all of these horror stories of, you know, a job opening at McDonald's and hundreds of people sort of lining up right. to apply. I mean, it was a very 
Very vivid. So Congress extended it to 52 weeks and then ultimately to 99 weeks. And I remember sort of looking into this at the time and thinking hard about it. If you were an able-bodied person of working age with no dependents and you exhausted your unemployment insurance, what did you get? And the answer was nothing. And when I say nothing, I don't mean like nothing worth speaking of. Literally nothing. Literally nothing. Hmm. And the question, how do those people eat? How do those people eat? Why shouldn't they put a brick through the window and help themselves to food? And if you want to preserve a society, and this is where I suppose I am very conservative, you want to preserve a society where someone who's unemployed is saying, I'm not going to put a brick through the window, not only because I fear the police, but because I value the system Mm. that keeps the windows up. Then you have to say, I don't have to put a brick through the window and risk prison to get something to eat. There's something for me to eat. Hmm. That sounds reasonably social democratic to me. Well, one of the things I think we've all discovered is that maybe these ideological arguments from the last period were too stark. And just as in the 1990s, social democrats had to face up to the fact, you know, we've been singing the red flag at Labour Party conventions. We never meant it. We don't mean socialism. That we understand that our social democracy depends on the extraordinary wealth generation of a market private property economy that maybe what should have happened and didn't, at least didn't happen in the United States in the crisis of 2007-9, was that people on the market side said, we are now rediscovering the wisdom of the 1930s, why you need certain forms of regulation, certain forms of social insurance. We, we never meant that lower taxes are always better. We never meant that you should cut all government programs. Right. We simply had different views about right. where the balance should lie. But that, in fact, did not happen. And one of the things that made Donald Trump possible was Republicans responding to the crisis of 2009, 2010, instead of at that moment rediscovering the importance of the social insurance state, they veered in the other extreme toward much more radical politics that were completely at variance with where even their own voters were. So this is the thesis that I've heard a lot, and it seems very plausible to me, that one of the reasons why Donald Trump stood out so much in that Republican contest in 2016 is that there were certain orthodoxies which the other 15 people on the stage accepted, in large part because who the donor base was and who the activist network were, and Donald Trump was willing to say no to all of that. May I be vain for a moment? This is a thesis you hear a lot. You didn't hear it a lot in 2000, when when I was saying (laughs) the first time. And I feel oftentimes, especially on the conservative side, do you remember the story about how in the 19th century when Boston ladies would go to France to buy dresses. They would go to Worth, the great designer, and they would put the dress in a steamer trunk and bring it back to Boston. And they would then wait a year before wearing the dress because otherwise the dress was too advanced for Boston. Right, right. So I often feel, I read things and think, that's literally something I wrote in 2009. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it had to be aged for a decade before it was safe to say. But I think that's true. I wrote a book about this that was published immediately after the defeat of Mitt Romney, that he had just moved away from even where the Republican voters never mind the country. And that's what made it possible. And one of the reasons I think Donald Trump is vulnerable now is that he didn't understand the secret of his own success. And he certainly hasn't delivered on that policy change. Exactly. And so, you know, there's 7 million fewer Americans with health insurance today than did in 2016. I mean, let me put it this way, which is let's assume safely that Donald Trump and his people are not listening to this podcast. What do you think the winning message for him in 2020 would be? Which is to say, if you really understand the nature of 
his support correctly mm -hmm. in 2016, yeah. what kind of sales pitch would you put together in 2020 in order to get him reelected? Right. I've always thought that Steve Bannon gave Trump pretty good advice from a Mephistophelian point of view. And that what happened to Trump is that Jared Kushner won all the internal fights, but Steve Bannon was right. So the tax cut was a mistake. It goosed the economy a little, but nothing in comparison to the cost of it from a fiscal policy and deficit and debts point of view. And he should have had a very loose fiscal policy, but on the spending side, not the tax side. I understand why he wants a looser monetary policy, but, you know, the basic Argentinian formula. And his big mistake has been that he's made too many enemies in too many places. And in particular, if he was going to do ethnocultural chauvinism, which has been a winning ticket for his kind of party across Europe, you cannot do that while also doing reactionary gender politics. Mm. Uh, you, you really have to pick. So I think there are women who would have been responsive to the ethnocultural chauvinism, but who don't like the reactionary gender politics. And I think he's more committed to putting women in their place than he is to putting non-white people in their place. Oh, interesting. So, so you're basically in a nicer way saying you think he's more of a sexist than he's a racist. Yeah, I mean, I think he's pretty racist, but I think but, that... But if, if you put those two in competition, <laughs> but, that, that, that seems plausible to me. Yeah, I, <laughs> what really bothers him, he is much more bothered by a woman who doesn't take physical care of herself than he is by a black person in a position of power and privilege. Yeah, I think it seems right to me that he has simply alienated too many groups. And if he was a little bit more disciplined, yeah. his recipe could be quite successful. I mean, one of the things that I've thought about how authoritarian populism could be incredibly successful in the United States is if it comes in the person of somebody who's himself a member of some minority group. Mm -hmm. And that can be a black man who invades against Latinos. It can be a Latino who invades against black right. people. You can cut the, it can be a Latino or a black man who invades against Muslims. You can, you can sort of cut the cake in different but ways. Some things, some things don't work because people aren't mad enough against them. So you can't, in the context of the 2020s, squeeze much juice out of anti-gay prejudice. That's just not going to be exciting enough to people. And I don't think in this country you can get very far with anti-Semitism. Again, it's just not interesting enough. And it also, let's not be naive, there's anti-Semitism in America, but it has never been a powerful American prejudice in a way that I think anti-Black, anti-foreigner, anti-Muslim, those all have potential. By the way, for authoritarian populists of the left, I think anti-Catholicism could be a powerful resource. Anti-Mormonism could be a powerful resource. If you think about this like an evil person, Hmm. But there are some things that there just isn't enough juice in the fruit. On this purely cultural issue, there's one school of thought that thinks that Trump is simply out of tune with the majority of Americans on all of those things, and that he may deliver Democrats a victory for that reason. That, for example, in 2020, uh, the economy is actually going reasonably well. If he kept talking about the economy and limiting his attacks a little bit, he might well win re-election. But because he is continually attacking various minority groups and doing this reaction in gender politics, he's overplaying his hand. A slightly different way of seeing it is that he is pushing on some, if not all of these things, on topics that have real resonance, in which the left is actually out of a cultural mainstream and Trump is managing to mobilize real anger, but he's going too far with them. And if he just toned them down by 10%, it could be a winning recipe for the populist right. Which of these interpretations do you think is well, right? First, I think we should not underestimate how likely he is to win re-election. American presidents tend to win re-election. Since the beginning of modern political campaigns in 1896, 
there have been four presidents who have sought re-election who didn't get it. William Howard Taft, Herbert Hoover, Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush. Lyndon Johnson complicates the story a little bit because he had been re-elected once. So let's look at those four. William Howard Taft was defeated by a party split. Herbert Hoover was defeated by the greatest economic catastrophe in the history of capitalism. Jimmy Carter was defeated by a bad economy and a foreign crisis. And George H.W. Bush was defeated by a recession and a party split. And one more thing that should be said of those four one-term presidents, that three of the four, Taft, Hoover, and H.W. Bush, were the third term for their own party. Hmm. It was their first term, but their party's third term. Right. And that seems very relevant to George H.W. Bush, for example. Right. The party was just out of steam. Yeah. And I mean, 12 years is a lot for one party. Then 16, uh, except for World War II, that never happens. So Trump is in the Carter position where he is not only a first term president, but also the first term for his party. So it takes a lot to beat somebody. And he has a very united party behind him, for better or for worse. So I think one should assume he's a pretty strong candidate. And all those poll numbers are bad. George W. Bush's poll numbers, he was south of 50% through most of 2004. Mm. And he still managed to eke it out. So, well, the other thing that I think strikes me about this political moment is that we no longer have partisanship, we have negative partisanship. Mm -hmm. So people used to like their own side and hate the other side. Mm -hmm. Now they hate their own side and really hate yes. the other side. Exactly. And so when I look at Donald Trump's approval ratings, I get very happy because they're consistently very bad. And he's consistently underwater by about 10 points, something like 43 to 53 goes up and down a little bit, but that's sort of broadly where we're at. The problem is that most of the Democratic nominees are underwater as well in their yes. approval ratings, and they have not yet been vilified by the opposition. Trump has not yet been able to mark them in the way that he will over 12 or 18 months. And so will Trump still be unpopular on Election Day in 2020? Almost certainly. Will he be less unpopular than his opposition? I hope so, but I don't think we should take yeah, that for granted. Yeah, Democrats are always caught by surprise by this, but... If Kamala Harris is the nominee, I guarantee you that her negatives will be worse than Hillary Clinton's by Election Day. The one person it'll be a little more difficult to do this to than anybody else is Joe Biden. Simply because people already have such an entrenched opinion of him? Yes. Yeah, he's such a known brand. But there may be things you can activate against him. And the thing that you do with a Biden is you don't go directly against him. You go against his coalition. But the Democrats have a lot of candidates who come from groups that the Republicans will be able to activate against. So you think this is a matter of pure bigotry? The way you were saying that sounded like the reason why Kamala Harris's approval ratings will be so underwater in 2020 is because she's a black woman and so Republicans will be able to activate resentment against black So women. just I'm as not... I, I bristled against your use of the term solidarity, I'm going to bristle a little bit against the term bigotry, not to be pedantic, because I think a lot of the liberal language about difference is based on a moral assumption that there is something aberrant and weird and in need of explanation when group dislikes group. So the norm is that everyone loves everyone else, and the aberration is that people don't, and we're very moralistic about it. So my view is that the dislike of group against group is natural. And one of the challenges of politics is, since the groups are actually quite arbitrary and often completely invented in the moment, that the marveling thing is the ability to create this kind of shirts versus skins are right. built against right. your group out of pretty scanty material. But the Democrats cooperate with this. I mean, I'm just struck by when Pete Buttigieg emerged as a top tier or second tier. So there's Biden and Sanders are tier one, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Buttigieg are, I guess, drawer two, and then everybody else is down below. 
How many thousands of think pieces did you read about, yes, he may be gay, but he's a white male? And the Democratic coalition is also driven by group animus, a group animus that Democrats themselves happen to find an acceptable group animus, but a group animus nonetheless. And that's real. Um, that you know, resentment of whites and males and of white males together. That's a powerful political force. And I don't call that bigotry either because, you know, that's just the way we've built things. So we'll get back to the electoral politics. Yeah. I think that's an important point there. But I want to dig down into this because I guess I would call it bigotry, right? So to me, there is a fundamental question about identity politics at the moment where there are a few different positions, right? So the left position, I think, is... Look, when you look at Donald Trump and you look at the Republican Party, that's all a form of white identity politics, and that's evil. So far, so good. I think that's broadly right. What we should do in response is to mobilize an identity politics of our own, where we assemble a coalition of groups that will be politically activated. And A, that way we will win a big majority because of various demographic trends in this country. And B, that's good. I have a problem with both of those premises. I don't think for various reasons that that is a winning coalition. But more importantly, I don't want to counter one set of group solidarity yeah. movements yes. uh, with another. Well, the um, Democrats are also often very naive about how much all of their different groups like each other. Right. And I've talked so, about this. So the, the Democratic advantage is their coalition is always potentially bigger hmm. than the Republican coalition. The Democratic disadvantage is it's much more unstable. As you know, there's Pete Buttigieg, who's impeccably gay, right, which is supposed to be a Democratic group, but he's also very white. Now, maybe if you were the actual literal nominee, they would decide the gay was more important than the white, or maybe they drop all of this stuff in the general election cycle. But in the moment when, you know, the other rivals are sharpening their knives against each other, this becomes an important thing. Yeah, there's two important pieces to his triumphalism, right? One part of his triumphalism is cultural. I remember reading Rita Xero's report in March 2009 about the inevitable democratic yeah. majority saying people are becoming more accepting of gay marriage and therefore we will always win the cultural debate. Culture is no longer going to be important in American politics. But of course now it is amazing that even Donald Trump has not really attacked gay marriage. But of course there's other issues which are polarizing. Right. And Rita it's not Sarah. obvious that on those issues Democrats have a bigger advantage than they did on gay rights in the mid-2000s. The other piece of it is demographic, to assume that everybody who has a drop of non-white blood somehow magically has the same political views or is on the same political side is clearly naive. But I want to get back to the question about what that means for the politics we should build, because I guess I would want to call somebody who will not vote for Kamala Harris simply because she's black a bigot. And I also don't think that, as people like Eric Kaufman are currently arguing, the solution to this is simply to be coherent and to allow all different forms of group identity. And nor is it the sort of solution on the left, which is to say group identity for minorities is fine, but group identity for whites is not fine. I think we need to keep the expressions of group identity in check politically while recognizing that people are drawn to them or recognizing that there's real discrimination and disadvantage that we have to struggle against. Well, I want to just add to that with the thought that we are familiar with a world in which the most important attack factor of Kamala Harris is that she's not white. We're moving into a world in which the fact that she's a woman is also an important attack factor. Now, there's always been, of course, anti-female feeling and anti-female prejudices, but there's something new that is happening. And this is one of the things that Donald Trump stumbled into very acutely. And one of the things that's wrong with the Rui Teixeira view of automatic change. We're moving into a world, there are always new dividing lines. 
And we're moving into a world, or we have moved into a world, in which the dividing line between the sexes is becoming as sharp a distinction as that between the races. This didn't used to be true. When most men and most women live in marriages with each other, it's pretty hard to imagine something that's bad for husbands that's good for their wives and vice versa. But men and women live apart on a scale never seen in the history of the human race today. That an absolute majority of people under age 35 are not married or partnered. More people under 30. I presume you mean between 18 and 35. Or between, something yes, like that. We're yes, not, we're yes, not yes, yes, not, yes. 18 to 30, of marriageable age. Between 18, and an absolute majority of adults under 35 are unmarried or unpartnered. And more people who are adult under 30 live with their parents than live with a partner. And what we are seeing is a gender gap that dwarfs anything ever seen in American politics and a values gap. When you ask a question like, do you prefer a a bigger government that offers more services at higher taxes or a smaller government with fewer services at lower taxes? The gap between men and women on that point is now over 20 points, which is, again, staggering. And men and women are becoming subcultures. And I think it's really striking when you watch any kind of online discussion, how much mutual, certainly among women, this is now in social media very much expressed. And the male hostility also expresses itself like Gamergate. I mean, at the time, it was so hard to understand, especially. And now it looks like prescient in terms like, of what, yeah, for, what, I, what our public culture now is like. Yeah. I remember during Gamergate, which is the side that thinks you should turn off the video games and play outside? <laughs> that's, the side. that's my side. <laughs> I disagree with you on that. I feel like one of the few reasons why I would seriously consider having kids at some point is that you can play video games uh, while being a, a good parent for spending time <laughs> with the kids. Well, there's a generation gap between us because I'm so... But who wants to go outside and play ball? <laughs> no? Nobody? But D- Donald Trump is a voice not just of white identity politics, which he is, but also of a lot of male sexual resentment. But Hillary Clinton was a candidate of a lot of female resentment. And in this case, I think you can see the language of bigotry is really the wrong language, because if men and women are mad at each other, there's no winners from that. That all represents a lot of loneliness and sexlessness and children who are not being born. And neither side is right nor wrong. They need to be together and they are apart. I think we have an interesting difference in baseline assumptions here, which is that I still tend to believe that what's more important is how somebody talks, than who they are. I think that's the only way to understand authoritarian populism, for example. There are certainly some authoritarian populists who very much embody the social class, who they have mobilized, and to whom they owe their electoral victories. I think two obvious examples, uh, three obvious examples, actually, are Viktor Orban in Hungary, Recep Erdogan in Turkey, and Narendra Modi in India, mm-hmm. who are all people uh, from a lower, a provincial lower middle class who have stormed into politics precisely as those groups have become more affluent and thereby more self-confident and outspoken and rebelled against metropolitan elites that in those contexts really did look down on them, sometimes in quite shocking ways. But then, of course, there's the counterexamples. People like Donald Trump, people like Nigel Farage, uh, even in certain ways, people like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who, uh, to varying extents, do come from an elite class and certainly should not be in political communion with the coalition that they have built. And the reason that they've been able to do that is because they are on their side. Now, you can see that even with some minority candidates. I mean, there was not the same male counter-reaction to Sarah Palin as there was to Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. Well, Um, that's that's no mystery. And it's not clear to me. No, of course, because she's sort of a gender traitor or class traitor or whatever it is, right? But the same is true of people like Herman Cain and so on and so forth, right? But but Sarah Sarah Palin and Herman Cain 
ratify views about the way women and blacks should behave. The most important thing about a woman is, is she sexy? And the second most important thing is, is she fertile? I'm both. So you can accept leadership from me. And Herman Cain said the most important thing about black men is, does he make whites feel comfortable in the feelings they have about black people? And he abundantly did. And he was his own walking minstrel show. And then people said, well, then maybe there's something inspiring about this. I have nothing against you qua you, so long as you don't make me rethink how I should think about you. I'm not prepared to have a black president who thinks he's better than me, like Obama, but I'm quite prepared to have a black president who doesn't think he's better than me, like Herman Cain. Why does Herman Cain not think that he's better than you? Herman Cain spoke in a stereotypically black way. He was not visibly intellectual. Barack Obama was, you show me a belief that prejudice white people have about black people. And, and Barack Obama single-handedly disproves it. I'm not. By the way, yeah, I'm punctual. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm the most devoted father and husband of any of the recent presidents. I'm serene. My idea of a good time, I'm, I'm, I'm a neurotic introvert. My idea of a good time is going into bookstores and looking at advanced modern fiction. That's what I like to do in Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> If, if I weren't president, I'd be an, an inward-looking novelist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm thinking of this slide that annoyed me very much from a recent training for school principals and others in New York City organized by the Chancellor of New York City yeah. Schools, which said that things like objectivity, worship of a written word, perfectionism were hallmarks of white supremacy. Well, um, I think that there's something very deeply wrong with that set of assumptions. I think it would come, for example, as a big surprise to the 1.2 billion Muslims in the world who certainly worship the written word. Um, well, Donald but, Trump believes in white supremacy and he's illiterate. Right, exactly. But certainly, actually, thinking back to that slice, it reads like a description of Barack Obama, right. which is right. ironic. So what about a candidate who's on the left? What about a candidate who does not want to do what Sarah Palin or Herman Cain did, do you think this basically means that as long as you are on the side of gender equality, as long as you're on the side of fighting against prejudice and discrimination, you're going to run into these problems? Or is there a, a real difference in how you talk about some of those issues? I'm not in the business of offering electoral advice to Democrats, but just look, the Republicans have shown you can carry with you a lot of things that voters don't like. And if you touch enough things they do, they will forgive you. So most Republican policies are pretty unpopular, but they're able to overcome it by touching certain kinds of emotions. For Democrats, the solution is you just talk about the policies all the time. I mean, the big problem that I think Democratic candidates for president have is they have, they have too many ideas. So Hillary Clinton, I think if she had walked out onto that stage with a blue hat, that said Medicare at 50 and never said anything else, she'd be president. Hmm. Now, what do you think about the um, situation in West Africa? Well, I think we will be a stronger country and better able to deal with security threats from West Africa when we have Medicare at 50. <laughs> <laughs> and just... <laughs> And just never talk, but she, but she couldn't, right? Because she had... You, you think Democrats should have a noun and a verb and Medicare at 50? Medicare at 50. And that's not the only answer. There are other things they stand for. Right. That are but also there's something equally. that delivers a tangible economic benefit to Americans irrespective of identity. Right. And then people say, I don't love all the other things this candidate stands for. And, you know, they irritate me in, in various ways and they don't belong to my group. But, you know... Um, I just turned 50. <laughs> and Medicare would be pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So you do have one topic on which you have given electoral advice of sorts to center-left parties. In a recent cover story for The Atlantic, you essentially argue that uh, their stance on immigration is one of the reasons why a lot of center-left parties have suffered, in particular social democratic parties across Europe, and that they have to rethink how they talk about and what kind of policies they endorse on immigration. Give me a short version of that argument. Explain to the listeners what you mean by that. So I, I see immigration as the fuse, not the explosive, in the rise of authoritarian populism. There are deeper and other things that are going on. But this is the one that always ignites and leads to the explosion. It is not true that if you were to solve the immigration problem, you would solve everything that makes advanced societies unstable or has made them unstable since the Great Recession. All the other things would be there. But you would buy time and you would make the other problems, which are more intellectually difficult, easier to deal with politically. And I think one of the things that is also wrong with our immigration debate is it's often treated like a binary question. Are you for it or against it? Rather than, should you have more or less? And one of the ways that center-left parties get in trouble is because they're never able to define what their limiting principle hmm. is. People on the left, especially in the United States, get irritated when you say, well, you know, they're accused of being for open borders. We're not for open borders. Well, what are you for? Hamana, hamana, hamana. Well, we think if, if someone comes here illegally and commits a series of serial murders and other atrocious crimes, then, then I think it's okay to... Okay, what if it's just a lot of drunk driving violations? Hamana, hamana, hamana. And when you can't say what your limiting principle is, people tend to assume you don't have one at all. That seems fair, but on the left, very few people are in a principled manner open borders advocates. And I actually deeply respect the people who are, because I think there's some real moral considerations that lead towards that position, even if I ultimately don't embrace it. And they're open and coherent in their beliefs. And then there seem to be a lot of other people who both think it's absurd to accuse them of being in favor of open borders, but also demonize any expression of a belief that immigration should in some specific way be limited. And what they communicate is at the test, when it comes time to make a decision, you will act as if you believed in open borders, whether you do or not. So a point here that needs stressing, the flow of immigration into the United States, never mind Europe, is not as great today as it was before the First World War. If you measure number of immigrants relative to the native population. But before the First World War, Americans were having lots of children of their own, and now they're below replacement. So even though the relationship of the flow of immigration to the stock of native population is less than it was before the First World War, its impact on the nature of the country is actually greater. Mm -hmm. We are in the mid-2020s, going to overtake the previous peak for foreign-born in the population, which was 1890, and we're going to keep going forever under present policy. And because most American counties are losing population and immigrants are going to very, very few places, that their impact on the transformation of the places where they do come and the sectors of the economy where they do go is overwhelming. And you create a feeling in the native population that they are being displaced from their own country. And this is tremendously destabilizing. And liberals are able to see this when the driver of the feeling of displacement is that the rich are getting richer. They're able to see it when the driver of the displacement is the economy is becoming more concentrated in a few great cities and real estate prices are becoming more expensive, but they can't see well, it. Well, ironically, they're even able to see it within neighborhoods. So liberals are very strongly against gentrification, yes. which is people from within the country, but outside of a community coming in 
and rapidly changing the nature of a particular community. Right, exactly. That's a, that's a fantastic example. And so you just need to begin by saying it's a source of stress and the need to euphemize it and say it's a wonderful thing and everybody loves it. It's the only free lunch policy there is. It is not a free lunch policy. It's a source of stress. Now, that doesn't mean that you endorse Donald Trump. That doesn't mean that you endorse nativism. And it doesn't mean that the correct answer is zero. But there's something tremendously arbitrary of saying, you know, through Congress in 1990, for a variety of reasons having to do with the working out of the immigration amnesty of 1986, that the United States made a decision to have 1.1 million green cards every year. And thus it was spake in 1990. And so it is true and eternal forever that the number of green cards chosen in 1990 is the number we should have in 2019. I don't see how that makes any sense. And you should be able to rethink this. So I have two sets of questions, or perhaps you okay, one more thing about yeah. this. Meanwhile, we are having at the border an immigration surge. It's called asylum seeking, but it's, of course, people looking for work from Central America that is about to catch up to the surges of, of illegal immigration at the peak in the middle 1990s. If the present trends continue, we're going to have as many illegal immigrants arrive in the United States in 2019, or as many unauthorized, uninvited immigrants arrive in 2019, as arrived in the middle 1990s, the peak of the illegal immigration crisis. So I have two sets of things that I want to think through here. The first is a set of questions about what the ideal system would look like. And then the second, which I think in some ways is the more substantive set of debates, the thing that I'm even more confused by about how to achieve it. So the first question I would have, I suppose, is whether the problem of immigration as you see it is mostly about how many immigrants there are or whether it is mostly about their level of skill. I personally have started to see the force in the argument that some people make, which by the way in Germany and much of Europe is seen as a very left-wing argument. The Green Party within Germany was ridiculed a few years ago for suggesting this by most of the political mainstream that thought that this kind of policy was far too cosmopolitan. And that's essentially the Canadian model, which is to say that you give most green cards out on uh, the basis of skill, because we have a belief that high-skilled people tend to integrate better, that they tend to have more successful offspring, that actually the huge majority of people who are often cited as the Nobel Prize winners and the founders of big corporations and all of those wonderful achievements tend to have come to the country on H-1B visas. And that uh, rather than buying the far-right populist argument about immigration, which is that there are certain cultural groups that simply are less good at being members of our society, that if you import um, people from Mexico, Central Europe, but if you import people who are Muslim, mm -hmm. they are going to be a big problem in this society. I don't see any evidence of that. What I do see evidence of is that immigrant groups that primarily tend to be recruited from H-1B visas or from close relatives of people who came here on H-1B visas, who are therefore also of a particular social class in the societies of origin, tend to do phenomenally well. That is the reason why Muslim Americans do better than the average in the United States population, especially if you take refugee populations out. Uh, that is the reason why Nigerian Americans are fantastically successful in the United States. It is the reason why some Mexicans and Central Americans do less well here, whereas the situation is reversed in Germany, yeah. where Turks who tend to have come as low-skill immigrants in the 60s do relatively poorly, uh, but immigrants from Central and Latin America 
do very, very well. So why shouldn't we put more emphasis when you put in your remarks right now and when you put in the Atlantic article on shifting towards high-skill immigration? I think we should do that, but I think numbers really do matter because it is the numbers, the stress of immigration, is um, it creates a dynamic where people grow middle-aged and old in a country that is very different from the country in which they grew up. And as they live longer and longer, this becomes more and more of a problem. We, we have a lot more reactionary 80-year-olds than we, than we used to do. So you, just, you need to factor this in. Now, that doesn't mean that the people who are stressed get a veto of the policies of the society. Immigration is a very complicated, it's a, you're recruiting your human capital, and there are a lot of considerations. And I point to some very important ones, but there are others too. And I don't believe there's one ideal immigration policy. If people would just ex begin by accepting the idea there are trade-offs. There are costs. It's a source of stress as well as a source of strength. And the numbers always make it harder. You know, if the United States were taking, instead of 1.1 million green cards a year, if we're taking 110,000, I think it'd be impossible to get immigration policy wrong. It wouldn't matter very much. Mm. You'd take low-skilled, high-skilled, you could not mess it up. If you take 1.1, it's very hard to get it right. If you took 140,000, which is the number that we had between 1965 and 1990, it would be easier to get that number right. And by right, I mean meet all the requirements of meeting the country's need for skills, keeping the population stable because it would decline when given present fertility without immigration, and also avoiding these xenophobic reactions. Let me double click on that. You have a very striking line in the piece, which I will butcher, but goes something like, if we don't follow popular opinion on immigration, the population will hire fascists to do it. Oh, if, if liberals won't enforce borders, the population will hire fascists to do it. To what extent is your argument substantive and to what extent is it strategic? Which is to say, if we took that electoral consideration out of the picture, if we were not in any way worried about possible counter-reaction uh, through people like Donald Trump, would you be making the same argument or not? I would not, but let's understand how deeply radical a thing you just said. So the second greatest immigration destination on Earth after the United States, not in percentage terms, but in absolute terms, the second greatest destination, immigration destination is Russia. Russia is about as racist a country, as chauvinist a country as there is, but immigration is entirely uncontroversial in Russia. And not merely because you're not allowed to talk about things. Because the Russians are an authoritarian state is able to subordinate people. The thing that makes immigration stressful is the democratic experience, that the promise that you come here, you're accepted, you are as fully a citizen as anybody else, you have the same rights, the same right to participate. So it has always been, this is a staple of the political science of two generations ago, that authoritarian empires can be multi-ethnic, Republicans cannot be. So yeah, it is a predictive argument, but it's also a substantive one. One of the things that bothers me a great deal about the policy that we've in fact followed, the United States has a bred a subordinated, rightsless population. So in 19, I make this point in the article in the Atlantic, in 1970, something like 97% of the people living inside the United States were American citizens. And the 3% who were not were mostly very old. Grandma came from Italy, could never learned enough English to pass the citizenship exam, and so she's in the attic, and she's not a citizen, and, you know, uh, but it doesn't matter because the rising generations are. 
And she's not in the attic hiding, just to avoid those connotations, which, uh, as a German Jew, immediately came to my mind. Yeah, but she's right. She's still she's still in the old country, even though she's living in the new. Uh, But 97 percent of people resident inside the United States were citizens. So today, I think the figure is about 90. But in many parts of the country, the figure is is much lower. And you have this situation where in large parts of the United States, substantial minorities, the people in a town or community are people who are not citizens and they occupy. And this is, I find something that I, I, this is thinking like a lawyer, which I used to be legally trained person. They occupy a spectrum of statuses that, you know, a Republic has citizens and it has non-citizens, but in the United States, we have citizens, we have permanent residents who have every right, except the right of political participation. We have people on various temporary visas who have the right to live, but not to change jobs. They have to go through a process of paperwork to change jobs. We have students who are not allowed to work. We have people who are here illegally, but have a temporary protected status. We have a DACA population. And it begins to look like... The- and we have a lot of people who have virtually no rights at all. And, and virtually, if virtually they no- are discovered uh, subject to deportation, right. which is but over even- 10 million people in this country, and it's a horrible... But even those people are, in, but some of them are in situations where they have relatives, and so they are, they qualify for various kinds of welfare state benefits, and others don't. And so you get this spectrum in which citizenship. I mean, it's still true that the vast majority of American people resident here are citizens, but it becomes an almost aristocratic status in a society with a wide range of subordinated statuses, and that's not how you run a republic. So one of the things that is a very urgent necessity in the United States and elsewhere is to make citizens of the residents you have. So liberals will say to that, well, that's great. What we just do is we pass DAC and we make citizens of them. But you need to understand that it's not like this is a once and for all thing. You know, you pass DACA and you get what is happening on the border from Central America where people say, if I can just get in and tough it out for a certain number of years, eventually I'll get status. So each of these amnesties breeds the next illegal immigration surge. So this brings me to my second substantive question or set of questions, which is, How do we do this? I mean, when I try to interpret the public mood about immigration in most Western democracies, I think there's some differences here between the United States and Western Europe. I think the United States actually tends to be more positive about immigration than many countries in Europe at the moment. But what I'm about to say is true here as well, which is that there are small pluralities and very clear majorities, uh, small pluralities in the United States, perhaps in Canada, very clear majorities in Western Europe, for less immigration rather than more immigration. And so as a result, governments try to implement various policies to limit migration. But people also have a very strong preference, for good reason, against state cruelty. And the only way in which governments can actually deliver on less immigration is to inflict various forms of pretty uh, extreme state cruelty that can take the form of a hostile environment that we now departed uh, from office, Theresa May, has put in place in the United Kingdom, leading to things like the Windrush Generation Scandal, where a lot of people who had come to the United Kingdom legally, but often without legal papers in the 60s and 70s, were threatened with deportation or deported. Or you get to things like separating children from their parents in the United States. And so you see populations flip-flopping in strange ways. Britain is deeply anti-immigrant, but then there's huge backlash against Theresa May uh, at the time of a Windrush scandal. All you're saying, uh, Donald Trump is elected in part because he promises to deal with uh, illegal immigration, and when a big majority of Americans is horrified by separating parents from their children. So here's the question: Is it possible to satisfy those two preferences at the same time? Is it possible to limit migration effectively 
without inflicting huge amounts of state cruelty. What you're saying is that politics is hard. So you ask people in Germany how they feel about global warming, climate change. I mean, the Germans are the most climate hawkish people, I think, in the developed world. And then there was a recent study of this. You start asking them about specific I things. I tweeted that study. Okay, okay. <laughs> I learned it from you. Thank you. And it turns out they're just more hypocritical than Americans. They are just as unwilling to make changes as Americans are. So the task of political... Yeah, so the, so, the, so, so the poll showed, if I remember, that sort of, you know, huge majority of the Germans think climate change is a big problem. We should do something about it. And then you say, are you in favor of a carbon tax? No. Are you in favor of this solution? No. Are you in favor of that solution? No. Yeah. It's like the classic onion headline that 95% of Americans are in favor of other people taking the bus to reduce traffic. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So the reason why we revere our successful political leaders is that after they're dead, we understand how hard their job was. So the job of leadership on global warming is to take a nation that refuses every individual change necessary to address this problem and somehow lead it to address this problem. Mm -hmm. The challenge in immigration is to find some way not to inflict gratuitous cruelties and yet to arrive at the non-binary intermediate position that both gets the country the, the numbers and the talent it needs while avoiding the problems of social instability. It's damn hard. In the same way with, with every other problem of politics. One of the things that somebody once said about your great friend Tony Blair, that great politicians are more like artists than they are like intellectuals. They don't think in tight categories. They don't reason. They intuit things. They see patterns and possibilities that other people do not see, and they put them together in new ways. And on every problem we have to solve collectively, that's going to be true, whether it's climate, whether it's immigration, whether it's public debt, whether it's finding a way to make cities livable. You know, we're going to need to build a lot of apartment buildings, but people don't want the apartment buildings next to them. They want them mm -hmm. next to somebody else. So I agree with all of that, but what does that look like? I mean, you know, just as a starting point, sort of two questions. How do you deal? So what would I do? Yeah, what would you do? Yeah. So I have no political skills at all. So I'm sure I would lose my first election on this platform, but my platform would look like the following. I would want to go back to the pre-1990 legal intake level of about 540,000, 550,000 a year. And I would want to rebalance that towards skills by such measures as eliminating most categories of family reunification. You can't spot sponsor a sibling anymore. You can't sponsor a sibling's children. I would be quite tough on bringing in even parents. You'd have to put up some money because to make your parents qualify for Medicare and so on is imposing. So I would rebalance towards stills away from family reunification. Of the 10 million people or so who are here illegally, about the majority of them have been here for more than 10 years. We have to make Americans out of them. I would also be tightly enforcing labor laws in the workplace so that those illegal immigrants who've been here less than two years would have a strong incentive to return home because they wouldn't be able to, to find work. I would deal pretty vigorously with the Central American influx. Where at the border, fencing makes sense and would be helpful. I, there's no reason not to do that. But the problem is a legal one. That there's a set of laws and treaties dating back to the aftermath of World War II that were written to say, if Anne Frank presents herself again, we want to be able to bring her into the United States. And this network of laws, which is written for the aftermath of World War II, is now being applied to a world in which hundreds of millions of people want to escape disorder and poverty at home, but not literally persecution. Um, so I think we need to change the laws on asylum to make it clear that asylum is something you get if they are coming. You know that joke in Catch-22, they're not shooting at me, they're shooting at everybody. If they're shooting at everybody, asylum is not the answer. Asylum is only the answer if they're shooting at you and very few other, you and a few people, but most people are not being shot at. 
So the difference you're working is a political opponent of a regime or somebody yeah. who's persecuted on the basis of a religion or ethnicity within a particular state right. gets asylum. Somebody who is an average subject of a terrible dictatorship Would is not. not. Somebody who lives in a democratic state under very real poverty and with high crime levels does not. Correct. Is that the set of distinctions? Yes. Now, how do you change the processing of this? Because my understanding is that a lot of the people who uh, apply for asylum actually are not eligible for it under existing yeah. laws. Right. But the problem of separating children from the parents is partially As arises from the cruelty of the Trump administration the, the system and being so on. But it, it, it right, and it in part arises from the so problem. You, you that need an emergency. Uh, so when you deal with that, I, you need an emergency surge of deputized immigration judges to the border to hear cases within two weeks. Because the vast majority of these people will be told they need to go home. They just will never do it. So you detain them. You detain everybody. You detain family units together. Uh, there is a problem because it's not clear that, these ch that the children come are actually the children. There's now a rent-a-child industry in Honduras, but you can't figure that out and just say, okay, um, two weeks. And what we want to know is that the state of Honduras is persecuting you personally because of some factor over which you have no control that is not morally reprehensible. And in the overwhelmingly probable outcome that that is not the case, we're holding you until you're hearing, you get your hearing, and then we send you back, and we send you back right away. And after we do that enough times over the next six months, people get the message, this is not a wise way to spend 7,000 American dollars. I know you understandably said that you're not in the habit of uh, giving Democrats electoral advice, but I am going to ask you for one piece of advice for everybody who wants Democrats to win 2020, because that surely is the only way we can get Donald Trump out of office. What are the three to five biggest mistakes that you see some of the Democratic presidential candidates making so far that we need to avoid in order to beat Donald Trump? Every Democratic candidate should delete Twitter from their phone and never visit it and have nothing to do with it. That's my point in the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> it's, very, it's very damaging to Democrats. Democrats love policy. They love developing policy. They have lots of ideas. They need to avoid the Hillary Clinton mistake of having too many ideas. Elections are one on one or two. And they need to remember that while it's not theoretically impossible that a tidal surge of forward-looking metropolitan young people will elect Democrats, go with the cautious assumption that the electorate is going to be pretty middle-aged. So I think the student loan problem is an important one. For one thing, I think it's one of the major depressants of fertility. Young people don't get married until they've each gotten rid of their debt, and by that point, they're 30. So, you know, we want people to be married before they're 30, or at least I do. But the Medicare at 50, that is such an important issue to the people who are actually going to pick the next president. Medicare at 50. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.